This week is Kitisa, and we mentioned this already a few weeks ago, that it's in relation to the way that we counted the Jewish people. Does anyone know how we used to count the Jewish people? You wanted to do a census, uh, a way of counting the Jewish people. We would do something called Kitisa. And uh, anyone know what that is? How we would count back in the day, we didn't have computers. What was the form of counting? Stay with me, by the way, because we're going to get to a very powerful message here. So the way we used to count was everyone would give half a shekel. And this was given at the beginning of every year, normally at this time of the year. Half a shekel was given by each person. And that was the way that we would be able to count the people. And it says that when you want to count them, this is how this Torah portion starts. This is what it's called, Kitisa. When you count the heads of the Jewish people by each person, then they should not count them directly. They should give an atonement for them when you count them. So that way, there won't be a plague when you count them. Because if you count them directly, there will be a plague. That's basically what it's saying. And what should you do? You should give half a shekel, which is worth about 10 grams of silver. Esrim uh, gera. 20 geras, but it's around 10 grams in modern day, of silver. And this was a gift to God. And that's how everyone was counted. Everyone would give a half a shekel. But it says the language is, ki tisa et rosh. When you lift up the heads of the Jewish people, when you count them. Kind of a strange way of saying it. It should have just said, give half a shekel. So there is no plague when you count them. But it doesn't say, give half a shekel. When you lift up the heads, when you count them, then there won't be a plague. First of all, why will there be a plague? And according to Jewish teaching, this is a very strict law according to Judaism. You're never allowed to count people directly. So if you ever have, let's say, 10 people in the room, you're not allowed to say, okay, here's, we have here one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We can't count people directly according to Jewish law. The question is why? We know that David HaMelech, David the king, at one point he started counting his people directly. He did not do it in the form of half a shekel indirectly. He counted people directly. And we're told that there was a massive plague. This happened with David. So there's something wrong with counting people directly. That's something we're not allowed to do. And the question obviously is why? And the answer is simple, but we're going to get into the depth of the answer. Why is it so bad to count people directly? And the answer really is that humans are special. Humans are too special to be looked at as a number. He's trying, Hashem is trying to teach us that we need to recognize every single human being's value. They are not just a number in a factory. People are not products. And therefore, when you want to count them, they are different. Recognize the value of each one. Now, listen carefully because this is game changer to the way that we look at politics and life and many other things as well. We need to always indirectly look at people not as a number. And therefore, if you want to count them, fine, count them. But count them through an, another means, not a direct means. And I'm going to show you this on a, on a deeper level. So Judaism values animals a lot, you should know. We 
believe that there's such a thing as called called chaim, causing pain to animals, and animals have a certain level of a uh, uh, life force in them, but their life force is definitely not the same as a human being. There's a difference between an animal and a human being. And we need to know that there's a difference. An animal in Hebrew is called, anyone know the Hebrew word for an animal? The Hebrew Hebrew skills coming out here. Anyone know? What's the word for an animal in Hebrew? I heard someone say something. Ah, Sapir, what did he say? Ah, Sapir, Chaya. So there's two types. There's a chaya and there's another type of animal. Yesh od mila Behema, behema. Behema, yesh behema vechaya. Chaya is more of a wild animal and behema is more of a domesticated animal. A behema in Hebrew comes from the word ba-ma. That's how you really, behema actually means ba-ma. In it is what you see. Meaning, whatever you see is the depth of the animal. What you see in front of you is the animal. There's nothing beyond it. Within a human being, we are called Adama. We come from the earth. Earth is potential. What's earth? You plant a seed in the ground, right? And earth is different to ashes. Ashes has no potential. Earth, you put the seed in the ground and you can have thousands of fruits coming from that seed. So I want to just touch on to this idea Because a human can build or destroy the world. You can have a Hitler in a human. And you can have a Moshe Rabbeinu, a Moses in a human. Humans have the ability to do way beyond their own selves. Animals are not accountable for the damages they do. For instance, if you are in the ocean, God forbid, none of you, but if a human being is in the ocean and they get attacked by a, a shark or a whale, We don't blame the whale. We don't take the whale to court. Okay, where's that whale that attacked you? Right? We understand that an animal is not accountable. It's just working out of instinct. Animals only work out of instinct. They don't work out of uh, anything beyond that. And therefore, they're never taken accountable. Humans are. A human could take itself to Mars. Hopefully soon, right? Or maybe not. But humans could take itself way beyond its own planet. An animal can't do that. I'll never see a bunch of elephants getting in a rocket ship and taking themselves out of this planet. Right? Humans have the ability to go way beyond themselves. That's why it says, according to Judaism, we look at every single human, that they were created in the formation of God. We are godly-like. What does that mean? We're like God. That we created the world. We are bidmuto. We are, we are similar. Dmut doesn't mean bitzelem only. Bidmut as well, which means we're, we're very dome. We have a similarity to God. What's the similarity between a human and God? That we can destroy or build this world. It's in our hands. We don't realize this, but a human being, the Mekubalim, the Kabbalah, according to Kabbalah, a human being has tremendous ability in every small action. We just don't realize it. And if we did, we would believe in ourselves a lot more. I believe that a lot of depression in people today is because we don't realize and we don't have this belief 
that we are, are capable of what we are capable of. When you start learning the ideas that Judaism teaches of what the neshama is really doing, the power of amen. The Talmud says when someone says amen to a prayer, the whole world was worth it for that moment. We don't understand the power of, of the human mouth. God says in Isaiah 51, these are the words that Hashem says himself. God says, I put my words in your mouth, meaning my ability to create in this world is in you, your hands. I've given you the shadow of my hand. You can plant heavens and create earths. And you can choose to say, you could choose to be my people. It's all in your hands. You know what happened? Midrash, listen to this Midrash. Listen to this. For any of the people that love nature, listen to, these, listen to this language. In the Midrash, it says that when the God created the world, he takes Adam, Adam Harishon, and he says to him, I'm going to show you every single tree in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, and the whole entire world. I'm going to show you every single tree that exists. And then he shows him, he shows him every tree, gives him a vision of every single tree. And then he says to him, look how beautiful my creation is. Look how praiseworthy it is. And everything I created, I created for you. This is what God says to Adam. And then he says these final words. Listen to this. But be very careful. Be very careful. Be careful not to destroy and ruin my world. Because if you destroy it, there's no one that's going to fix it after you. These are the lang this is the language of the Midrash. Meaning the human being has the ability to destroy or build this world. We have the ability to destroy this world. God, you can't say, oh, God created the world, so he's going to take care of it. No, we human beings have the ability to create or destroy the world. That's why the human being stands upright as opposed to the animal. How does the animal stand? Facing the ground. No, but its head isn't. Yeah, I know, I understand. But look at the body. And look at the way it's, it moves, right? Crawling, basically. That's how animals move. And even a bird, the legs may be standing, but the body is going in that direction. Right? It's going in that direction. Human being stands on two feet and goes completely upwards. There's five levels of the soul. I don't know if you'll remember this, but it doesn't matter. There's five levels of the soul, three aspects of your soul are in your body. Okay, I'm getting into Kabbalah a bit, but listen, listen to this. There's three aspects of your neshama that are in your body because, you know, the body is just physical stuff. It shouldn't have so much depth to it, but for some reason it does. When we're alive, we're so complicated. We think, who made me? Like, an animal doesn't think, who made me? Humans question, who was my creator? It's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal idea. So the soul rests... There's, there's five levels to the soul. There's nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, yechida, different names. Five different levels to the soul. I'm not going to get too much into it. But the neshama, the three of those levels are in your body. The neshama is in your brain. That's the highest part of your soul in your body. And it rests in your brain. That's why the brain is considered as the holy of holies. It says a dangerous thought in a human mind is way more dangerous then what happened when they destroyed the temple? Because you know, destroying a holy temple is just a building at the end of the day. 
But destroying the mind, that's where the holy of holies rests. That's where your soul rests. So the neshama rests in your moach, uh, in your intellect. In your heart, lev is where the ruach rests. Ruach is another name for your soul, different type of part of your soul. And that's where your emotions come out in your heart. And then in your liver is where the nefesh, another aspect of your soul, it's in your blood main as well. But it's in your nefesh, that's where it starts in the liver. That's where it rests another part of your soul. And that's the desires in your body. So you have the intellect, the heart, and the desires. Moach, Lev, and Kaved. Moach, Lev, and Kaved. These are the three parts of you. And they act differently. They, they work differently. What's very, very interesting is that when I calculate those words, Moach, Lev, Kaved, I have the word Melech. Melech is Moach, Mem, starts with, it's an acronym for Melech, King. I am a king when I use my intellect over my emotions and over my desires. If I go in that order where my intellect is first to control my emotions and how I react, but I use my intellect before I, I react to a situation. I am intellectual before I just react to something that is challenging. And then I use my emotions as well. We can't not have emotions. The soul is there too. And then I use my desires. My desires come last. Then I'm going to be a king. I'm ruling over myself. I am ruling. If I'm using my intellect first, I'm ruling over my emotions. I'm the king of myself. So that's because the human is standing. So when the human is standing, he has first moach, intellect, then emotion, then kaved, then his, um, his desires. Then he's a king. That's how it stands. But an animal has all three on the same level. Not that we don't value animals. Don't get me wrong. We, we believe that we can never cause pain to animals. Tzar balechayim is a very severe thing. Never call, you know, according to Judaism, there's a big question whether you can even go and watch. Um, you can go and watch, uh, you know, in Spain where they have the, the bullfighting. It's a big question according to Judaism if you're allowed to go and watch that. Or these uh, games where they gamble with animals for where they're fighting against each other. You're not allowed to, according to Jewish law, cause tsar bale chayim, pain to animals. Why we eat kosher meat is another discussion. Actually, originally, when Adam came along, we didn't eat meat. After the Garden of Eden, we left the Garden. We were allowed to, to make us understand the distinguish difference between humans and animals. But actually, we value animals a lot. But just understand the power of the human being. This is where I want to get to because this is, this is what I want to say. Because without this belief, with this atheistic belief that we're all just random... I'm, I'm going to be depressed without thinking and understanding that I'm much greater. My, my own self is so beyond. And this is what, this is what builds, builds a sense of happiness in us. To know that I can be a melech. I can be a king. The human being stands up straight. And he has his brain first, then his heart, then his desires. The animal has them all on the same level. And when you read melech the wrong way, king the wrong way, you have klum. You have kaf lamad mem, which means klum, which means nothing. That the way that we need to be is using my intellect over my emotions, then my desires. 
When I do that, then I'm a king. But if let's say, I say to myself, oh, there's a cake. I want it. What's talking to me? Which part of my body is talking? There's a cake in front of me. I want it. What's talking? Is it my desires? Is it my emotions? Or is it my intellect? Someone. What's talking when I see a cake in front of me and I say, hey, I want that cake? Stomach. My stomach, right? My liver. My, in, my desires. My desires are talking first. If I let my desires talk first, I am not a king. Then my desires are controlling me. But if I am able to intellectually think prior to actually getting emotionally connected to something, prior to actually getting into a desire for something, I'm allowed to bring the intellect, intellect in first, then I am a king of myself. I am the ruler of me. Not that my desires are ruling me. Not that my emotions are ruling me. So that's, that's the difference between the human and the animal. Because we have, the animals work of instinct. That's how they work. They, they're just an instinct. That's what it is. That's why they never get charged. It, a whale never gets in trouble for eating or for attacking a human being. You know why? Because he's just working naturally of his instinct. They're, they're all the same. Intellect, yeah, he, has, he may have a great intellect. The emotion and his desires are just all level. There's no, there's no ability to overcome in the, set, in the same way that the human being has. We are the ones that can create or destroy this world. Humans can be Hitlers. Whales can't. They can just be themselves. Humans can be Moses. We can be people that give life to thousands of people, but, but animals can't. Not the same way. They can... Support us in some ways, but not the same way. So this is the language that God says. When you count them, don't just count them directly. Raise them up. Lift, up the, lift them up by their heads. Recognize their, who they are. Don't just make them another number. This is speaking to Moses. Telling him, listen, you're the leader. What's this like? Let me give you an example. If I have a house and I fill it up with coins... Thousands of coins are in a room. Thousands of coins in a house. I take one out and I swap it for another. Would anyone get bothered with me? Would you say one coin is different than the other? One coin is better than the other? As long as they're worth the same. If I have a whole house filled with coins, they're all coins. doesn't make a difference. But let's say I don't have in my house hundreds and hundreds of coins filled in the house. I have hundreds of pieces of art. Some of the most glamorous pieces of art that you can imagine. All over my house. Then you'll say each one of those are different. Can you compare one piece of art to the other? Can you take this art and say, ah, Mona Lisa is different to that one. Is there. Yeah, so they're all the same. It's all just art. You can't say that. Well, that's how we need to treat every single human being. And therefore... When you want to count human beings, when you want to look at human beings, you need to understand that each one of them is different. This is one of the big problems. I call this the menglers of uh, science. There's different types of scientists. There's very good scientists. I love science. It's my, one of my biggest hobbies outside of Judaism because it gets me to appreciate the world that we have. But then there's mengler-type scientists. You know who Mengele was, right? He was a scientist 
on Jewish children and using them to discover things um, in the Holocaust. And the problem was that he was objective. This is the problem. It's objective versus subjective. Oh, it's just a brain cell of a human being. Oh, this is just um, a, a piece of blood, right? But I don't connect the fact, I disconnect the fact that this is, this is a human, this is a child. This is a real child. This is a real human being. When I, when I see a person in front of me, and I'm a doctor, I need to say, this is a father. This is a mother. This is a, this is a person that has a story behind them. That's how I have to look at human beings. Not just because this is my job, so therefore every person is a study for me. Right? As coming in as a scientist can be dangerous when you're looking at biology. Because every person can be very, very objective. Um, you're looking them outside of who they really are. You're not looking them personally as for who they are, as a soul. As a, you, I'm just studying them. That's what happened with some of the greatest sci scientists have done something, some things which are very evil. But we, what we're trying to show here is that no matter what position I'm in, and this could be also people in politics, people that are leaders, people that have a, a, are CEOs of a company, and I'm looking at how much money I'm making and you know, how many people work for me. I have 50 people that work for me. So they're numbers for me. No, this is not a number. This is a human life. And I must never forget this because no matter where you are, everyone that's here is going to get successful one day. But if you want to be respected at the end of your life, you want to be looked at as somebody that's made a difference to this world, you have to look at humans like humans. Not as numbers. Every single human has a use. And that's the message here. There's a story of an Italian musician before he passed away. I forgot the name. Before he passed away, in respect, he got sick. He was very ill. And before he passed away, they did a, uh, uh, they replayed his song, his music. Philharmonic Orchestra, they had it replayed just for him. And they invited him. He was too sick to come. So he was on his bed watching this from his bed. He was watching the whole show live from his bed. And he's lying there watching his music that he created being replayed with a philharmonic orchestra. And as he's sitting there, some, of his, some other musicians came to watch and see how he reacts to his own music being played professionally. And they noticed that at some point he started getting frustrated. He was getting upset. He wasn't comfortable. The music sounded great. They didn't understand what's going on. They asked him, why, are you, wh why were you frustrated? We saw you weren't exactly fully happy. He says, yes, because, you know, the music in your eyes might have been fine. But the way I designed this song, it was meant to have one more violinist. There was one more violin that was missing. And I know that there's... I created the song, and it needs to have a certain number of violins playing at the same time. There's one violin missing. See, when the creator of the universe creates the world, he knows the purpose and the song of each human being. We, as human beings, can't know the song of every human being. So we don't value humans as much. But God created each one, and each human being is a song in the music. And that's how we need to treat humans and understand humans.
So this is the message. If you want to be part of the Jewish people, if you want to be an or legoyim, and a light to the nations, I'll make you as a light to the nations, not because you'll be stronger or better at sports or better looking, although there's some very good looking people here, but that's not the reason why we are the Jewish people. We are the Jewish people to be a light to the nations. This is the words in Isaiah. So Hashem says, I will make you an or lagoyim, a light unto the nations. How are you going to be the nations? You have to act in a certain way. Treat yourself like the children of God. That's what the Torah says. You are the son of God. If you're the son of a king, you act differently. You respect your body differently. How you eat. That's why we have kosher. All of this is to, sh- you know, when you work, before you work, we put on tefillin, we put on those wraps. There's a special crown that we put on our head. God's basically saying, look, you work, the rest of the world works. How are you going to be a light? Before you run out your house or run to your phone, put on this crown on your head and recognize who you are. Recognize why you're in this world. Recognize that you have a tremendous ability. That's what it means. You dress like a king. You dress dress like a queen. Right? So I don't know whether it's legal for me to run around topless or not. I don't do it. And it's not because I don't have a six-pack and I have lots of hanging flesh. That's not why I don't do it. I don't do it because I have a certain, I'm the son of a king. And I, I don't think you would see the son of a queen doing that. You won't see the daughter of the queen doing that. So that's just something I won't do. I hold myself and value myself to a certain standard. There's an idea of tzniut, modesty. Even if I do have the greatest looking body, I will never show it in a way that I want everyone to see me flex because there's modesty. I want, to look, I want people to look at me for who I am, not for the things I have, like my body. So that's, that's the Jewish values that we teach. All of the mitzvot are, are there so that we can be a more shining light, so that we can recognize the value of ours. And as well in this regard, recognize that you have value and you're not just a number. Remember the Holocaust, right? What do they do on everyone's arm? What do they put on everyone's arm? That was they their name. Number. They didn't have numbers, right? They didn't have names anymore. You, you don't have a name. You don't, your name is irrelevant. Dehumanize them. You're just a number. Here's your number. That's it. That's how we'll recognize you. What's your number? What's your number? What's your number? We don't need to know your name. And the same is the way we treat ourselves or the way we're treated. What's your job? What's your job? I don't know. I don't need to know your name. What, what job do you have? What body do you have? See, we're starting to treat people not by who they are. And the Torah says it starts by the way you count people, the way that the leadership works. So it seems stupid. Like, you know, why not count people directly? No, no, no. You want to be a light to the nations? Even there, you need to be careful. And that's what it wants. It wants you to believe in yourself. Judaism wants you to believe in yourself, to recognize how powerful you are. And that's why it says there'll be a plague amongst the nation if we do that. Right? So believing in yourself doesn't mean that you, you feel above everyone else. You believe that you have a purpose, that God gave you a life, that you are 
You know, this is very important, both physically and spiritually. Physically, to believe in yourself is good for when you get in an interview or you're in a job, you have the sense of confidence. But also spiritually, like we said. Spiritually, that you're, you have the ability to do one good deed, and that can be the belief. This is the belief that when I do a masim tovim, when I do a mitzvah, its, it's power is way beyond my understanding. This is the belief we need to walk around with. There's a great rabbi who says, as much as Judaism wants you to believe in God, it wants you to believe in yourself. You hear that? As much as we want you to believe in God, believe in yourself. Right? So I'm very into God. Right? You see this thing. I'm pretty much into God, but I also believe as much that you've got to believe in yourself. That you have a quach. Not that you're God, right? Not that you created the world. But that you have a tremendous ability who was one of the greatest rabbis of Jewish history? Rabbi Akiva. He started at the age of 40. Didn't know a word. He went into a school, a kid's school, and sat with little kids. And slowly but surely came the great, great Rabbi Akiva, the greatest rabbi of our history. He was the rabbi of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. You know that, right? The Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was the writer of the Zohar, of Kabbalah, all the Kabbalistic books, everything. He was the rabbi of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Who was he? A commoner that was a shepherd till the age of 40. Couldn't read a word of Hebrew. Didn't know how to read. Never mind Hebrew. Didn't know anything. And became the greatest of the greats. Why? Because he believed in his power. He had enough humility to sit with little kids that were three years old, four years old, and say, I want to learn what they're learning. Then I'll go to the next year grade, and I'll learn what they're learning, and I'll learn what they're learning. He took it seriously, and eventually came the great Rabbi Akiva. You know, he wrote one of the greatest works called Otiyot de Rabbi Akiva, the letters of Rabbi Akiva. He, he goes through the depths of each Hebrew letter and shows how they can, if you understand Otiyot de Rabbi Akiva to its fullest level, you'll, you'll be able to create things with it. I mean, we're talking about some, some of the greatest knowledge in history. That's Rabbi Akiva, who for 40 years old, he was nothing. That's, that's the power. If somebody wants to be successful, not just in his business, not just physically, not just in his marriage life. It's also spiritually to believe and have this emunah and be faith strong with this emunah that I am way more powerful than just my own space. My light is, that's why we're compared to a candle. Because a candle is really, what you see is not much, but it goes way beyond its spells, its space. It dispels a tremendous amount of darkness. So that's what we also need to know. I want to continue and just tell you another idea, which is also so, so powerful in this week's Torah. And it's kind of put under the rug. Because we say, eh, whatever, we can't believe that happened. And then we put under the rug the messages that comes here. So listen to this message. Mind-blowing. So you remember that the Jews got these tablets, right? Mount Sinai, we got the tablets. So that's in this week's Torah portion. What did we get? God says, go up to the mountain. This is already a few weeks ago mentioned in Parashat Yitro, when the Torah was given to the Jews. Go, says to Moshe, Go up to the mountain. Come up to me in the mountain and be there. 
And then I'll give you three things. I'll give you the Luchot HaEven, the tablets, the Torah, which is the written Torah that we have, and the mitzvah, which is the oral law, the explanations of the mitzvah as well. So, you know, in Judaism, we don't just have Jewish laws. We have the explanations of the laws as well. And that's called the oral law. When I start getting, delving into the depth of, okay, so we have to put these things on my arm. It says tie them on your arm. But wh- where do I tie them? What do I tie? Why am I tying it? Where do I put it on my head? It says between your eyes. Is it here or is it here? Where the two eyes vision actually meets right? Which is above your head. So there's all these different laws in the Torah, but what does it really mean? So that's where an eye for an eye is a perfect example. It says in the Torah, if somebody hits you in the eye, give him another an eye for an eye. Well, the oral law explains that's just monetary. It's not physical because if it was eye for an eye, it wouldn't be ever, it would never be equal. What happens if one person already has one eye missing? So you say an eye for an eye, take the other guy's, he has, you can't compare one eye to somebody who only has one eye to somebody who has two eyes. You'll never get an equal case. And we understand it means monetary law. So you need oral law to explain the written law and the reasons why the written law is written in that way. So Moses was told, go up the mountain and I'll give you the tablets. You remember those tablets? What was on those tablets? The Ten Commandments. This is the language of this week's Torah portion about these tablets. Now, stay with me, okay? So whether you, I have another whole class proving why we believe in the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai and many proofs that really are rational to explain why we believe in this. I've had people come up to me, Rabbi, you really believe in like Moses and like all that stuff? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He literally thinks I'm off the charts, like I, I'm, he's, he starts laughing. And I'm like, no way. You believe that stuff? I'm like, yeah, I really believe it. So there's another whole class that I need to give, and I've given many times, on proofs and the rationale behind the giving of the Torah to the Jewish people. It's actually fascinating. So That's not what I'm trying to do here. I want to tell you a message here. So Moses goes up the mountain, and we all know the story. He's there for 40 days. And after those 40 days, the Jewish people are waiting and they're like, hey, he's not coming down. So they start building the golden calf. You remember that? They build a golden calf. So he's up there. Moses is up there 40 days, 40 nights. And it says like this, at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights, when he finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai, he gave him these two tablets. They were made of very special stones. The first one was made directly by God. Stones of sapir, sapphire. Right? We have someone called sapir here. Sapphire stone. Very, very special uh, stones. These are very expensive stones. And they were godly, beautiful. Something very bright and beautiful. And it was a square-looking shape. Two square-looking shapes. That's how we originally understand it to be. Not the way that we have pictures. And it also, we're told that they were These were very, very special. They were engraved with the finger of God. It says that it was miraculous because normally when you engrave something, so on the other side of the engravement, it would go backwards, right? If you engrave through something, if you write on a window, let's say, a word, 
right? Don't steal. Then on the other side of the window, it would come out, the text would come out the wrong way around. But miraculously, it was both, no matter which side you'd look at it from, it was done in the right way. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you all of this to teach you a very powerful message. It also says that mem, mem v'samech benes hayu omdim, the letters mem, you know how a mem looks, right? It's like a round square. And a samach is more of a circle. They would stand in a miracle as a miracle. Why? Because a complete circle needs to have a piece in the middle. And if it's completely hollow from one side to the other, then how did you hold that piece in the middle? So if you have a mem and you, it's hollow and it's engraved, then there has to be a piece hanging in the air in the middle. And the rabbis teach that the mem and the samach of these tablets were hollow completely, and they had a piece hanging in the middle in the thin air. It was a miracle. Gravity didn't pull it down. It stayed in the middle there without being pulled down by gravity. So what was the point of that? Why did it need to have such a miracle? And the idea here is very, very powerful. This is what I'm trying to get to. The miracle of the tablets. These were not just, according to Jewish teaching, tablets with text on it, of words on it. These were tablets with miracles in the tablets itself, that the text, there was physical parts of it that wouldn't be pulled down by gravity. The Mem and the Samach had a square, a piece in the middle, but it wasn't pulled down by gravity. And it was a miracle. Why? And the idea was to teach us, because this is the tablets, it was to teach the world that things are different than the way you think. It's not that the body controls the soul, right? We think that the body holds the soul. As long as the body's not here, the soul's not here. It's the opposite way around. The spiritual holds the physical, not the other way around. It's not that the physical dictates for the spiritual. It's the spiritual that dictates for the physical. That's why in Hebrew, physicality in Hebrew is called chomel, chomel. That's what physical stuff is in Hebrew. Chomer, it comes from the word ruach and mem. Chomer comes from the word, it has in it a mem. Mem in Hebrew means movement. Like when you say, I'm going from here to here, right? Mi kan lesham. Mi means from. Right? Mem means movement. Maim, water in Hebrew starts with mem because water is the way that you move things. So, the letter mem represents movement. And in the words physicality, you have movement. And you also have another word called ruach. It's literally, if you think about the atom, what is it? It's just air. Ruach also means air, right? Moving at great speeds. And it's these little bits of electrons. Mostly, it's just air. It's not really that much matter. It's a tiny bit of electron which is moving at such speeds that forms the physical reality that we see. So really, this is the idea. It's the spiritual that keeps the physical, not the other way around. That's the message. What does that mean? Let me, let me explain to you that, what that means. If I have a problem, right? If I feel unhealthy, let's say my arm hurts. What do I do? I go to the doctor. I say, listen, doctor, my arm is hurting. I'll tell you something. 
According to Jewish teaching, your arm isn't hurting because your arm is hurting. Your arm is hurting. The physical is hurting because something spiritual is hurting. If you have chest pain, it's the stress. It's the inside that is hurting the chest. The spiritual keeps the physical. It's not the other way around. We get confused. We, we think that fix the physical and then that everything's going to be fine. It's not it's fix the inside and then things will be fine. Fix how I'm thinking. Things will be fine. Fix the spiritual and things will be fine. That's how we look at the world. The, the physical is a manifestation of the spiritual world. That's why according to Judaism, God looked at the Torah and then created the world. Meaning this, the physical that we, we see is an outcome of something that came prior. You know, in, in science, we used to believe not only till the beginning of the 20th century, right? To Hubble's law. To the beginning of the 20th century. We used to, until then, we always thought and believed in static state theory. Anyone know what static state theory is? Now we believe in Big Bang theory. Static state theory believes that the world always was. It never had a beginning. So don't think that we used to think this 200, 300 years ago. No, no. We thought this at the beginning of the 20th century. In 1930, we were still questioning static state theory. We still believed in that. Everyone, it was universal. Everyone believed in static state theory. Static means it's not moving. Until we noticed that the universe is ever expanding, we, always, we never realized that the universe is ever expanding. When you understand that the universe is ever expanding, you, you understand it started from something very small, right? So static state theory was that the world is static. It's not expanding. It always was in the position that it is. And then we discovered through the telescope and Hubble's law that the world is actually expanding and it started from nothing. That's the Big Bang Theory, that it started from something very, very small. And we believe that very small bit came from nothing. Yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. So when we think about it, this is it. The, and it's, it's fascinating. You know, some people look at Judaism and say, yeah, Torah is so old-fashioned. And, and what we really, you have to understand that Judaism is actually only getting more and more in fashion scientifically. As science progresses, we're actually discovering more and more like the way that the Torah understands the world. That we always knew that in physical is mostly ruach. It's mostly nothing. It's mostly just air. You look at an atom. You look at a table, right? What's the table? It's mostly nothingness. How much of a table is really matter? Tiny, something that you can't even describe. It's just movement that's going so fast that forms the matter that we see. So we think, oh, right, the, 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 the Judaism's old-fashioned. No, no, it's getting more and more in fashion, more in tune. We always believe that physical is chomer, ruach, amen. Movement and nothingness. And the nothingness is the ruach behind it. That's the force, the energy is the spirit. The physical holds, doesn't hold the spiritual. The spiritual holds the physical. This is a whole different way of thinking. It's not that the body holds my soul. My soul gives purpose to my body, gives life to my body. The minute that my time is for my soul to leave, the soul will always exist. And then the body will fall down to the ground. It says, when the spirit leaves, the body falls down to the ground because gravity will just pull me down. 
It's the spiritual that keeps the physical. That's what it says at the beginning. We had the Or Haganuz, the great light. Right? What's the great light? The Zohar explains, according to Kabbalah, the great light is the breaking down of energies. That Originally, there was this great light, and then it's the breaking down of energies until we have the physical world. That's, that's what it is. The, the, the spiritual is what holds the physical. But I want to also get into the language here. So Moses, at the end of the 40 days, gets the tablets. At the end of the 30, 40 days, he gets it. So what was he doing for 40 days? Why only at the end? Listen to the language here. This is, this is mind-blowing stuff, I'm telling you. Stay with me. Mind-blowing stuff because it's, it's really what, what would give us the fuel to have energy in our life. I'm not just saying stories for the past. I'm saying stories so that we can understand who we are. So this is the language. God gives to Moshe, kechaloto, says in the language, when he finished. Now, the word kechaloto is without vowels. You know, when you open the Torah, the Torah has no vowels in it. You know that, right? When you go to the synagogue and the guy's reading from the synagogue, he's reading it without vowels. And that's why everyone corrects him if he's making mistakes. Well, what's the point of that? Why doesn't the Torah just have the vowels in it, right? Anyone here? find it difficult to read Hebrew without the vowels? Much harder. So what, why is the Torah without vowels? Can you not just put vowels in every word? It could have done that, but it doesn't. The Torah would scroll, no vowels. Makes it difficult for the rabbi that's reading it. Why? I'll tell you why. Because when you don't have vowels, words can be read in multiple ways. It's, it has room for multiple interpretations. And you can see one word, it can mean multiple words, like the word panim, right? The word face also means without vowels, with, with vowels, panim, it means face. But without vowels, you can read that same word differently. You could say panim, it means the inside. And that's what it means, right? The face also represents the inside of you. When I look at somebody and I see their face, I'm seeing the inside of them. Every other part of his body doesn't tell me who they are from within. But the face has a tremendous ability to give me an, some kind of identity of who I'm looking at. It's my, it's my trademark. It's, it's the way I walk around. It shows who I am. Am I compassionate, not compassionate? Every wrinkle on my face tells me something about me. So the Torah is not written with vowels. And that, the reason for that is, is so that we can read and look at the Torah in many multiple ways. We have to be careful not to just read it our own way. It has to be in a way that doesn't contradict that which the Torah is written in the Torah. Can't contradict that which is written in the Torah for sure. But we need to, um, you, you, that's what the Orachayim, one of the great rabbis says, anyone can actually bring in novel ideas from the Torah, study the Torah and then bring in new ideas. Anyone can do that as long as it doesn't contradict something else that's written in the Torah. If you come up with an idea, yeah, this means this, that, and the other. You could say that as long as it doesn't contradict other parts of the Torah. If we find another part of the Torah that contradicts it, you can't do that. Anyway, the idea here is, is fascinating. The idea is, God, he's about to finish. That word, when Moses finished his 40 days, is what does the word sound like? There's another word. 
When it's not written with vowels, it sounds like another word. You know what words it sounds like? Kala. What's a kala in Hebrew? Bride. A bride. Kechaloto means a bride. When Moses finished, when Moses was bride, what does that mean? Right? The word, when he finished also, to finish also means to be a bride. Why? Listen to what I'm going to tell you. Fascinating. Because Rashi explains, the commentary explains. The Torah was given to Moses at the end of 40 days, like a gift, just like a bride is given to her groom. Because it's not possible to know the entire Torah, right? Torah is given from God, and it's not possible to know all of that information in 40 days and 40 nights. And we know that Moses was working nonstop, trying to figure out, it was tremendously difficult. And Eventually, at the end of 40 days, he got it all like a bride. He got it all like a gift. What's a bride? A bride is somebody 25, 26 years old that you're getting married to. And we forget, but that girl, whoever it is, right? Same with the guy, mainly by the bride. That girl was looked after for 25 years. She was fed. Someone educated her. Someone paid her education from the beginning. Someone gave birth to her. Someone looked after her for 25 years. And suddenly they come to you and they say, here, here, take it. This is your package. This is your gift. Always know that when somebody gets a bride, they're getting something which is complete after 25 years. After 25 years that somebody has been toiling and working so hard to make this person for you. What a gift. That's why, according to Jewish law, your parents-in-law need to be treated like your parents. You have the same law. It's not according to the Torah, rabbinical law, but the same laws that you have of kabed et avicha mecha, honor your father and your mother, applies to your parents-in-law as well. You know this, right? When you get married, you'll have the same laws with your parents-in-law as with your parents. Why? Because there's a tremendous gratitude you're supposed to have. They, they brought up this child. I know, because I have kids. There's a tremendous amount of work. And one day, I'm going to say to my kid, okay, here you go. Go to the person of your dreams. And that person of the dreams must remember that for those 25 years or 20 years or whatever it is before he got married to her, someone worked day and night to make sure that that person's ready. Tremendous amount of work. So because of that, you have to have tremendous gratitude to your parents or parents-in-law. So this is what it means to be finished. It, it sounds funny, but to be a kala, to be a bride, means to be complete. And that's the language here. Moses worked and worked and worked and worked for 40 days and 40 nights, toiling, trying to understand basics of the Torah. But obviously he could never because it's from God. If it was just a human being then maybe you can get to a point where you understand it. But when you understand that this stuff comes from God, it's not, it's not like you can just understand it. 40 days and 40 nights, he's trying, trying, trying. He doesn't get it. And at the end, he gets it like a bride. That's what Rashi says. He gets it like a bride. What's the message here, my friends? The message is, if you put in the effort, 
to something. You put in all the effort and you say, I can't understand it. I just don't understand. It's too hard. It's too hard. Put in the effort. God will give you the rest. This is a Jewish belief. And that's the Jewish idea. That's how we succeed. The goal is not to, to get to the end goal. The goal is to put in the effort. You put in the effort, the results will come. You work hard and you succeed, then you can believe in it. If you didn't work hard and you didn't succeed, then you have to know that it's because you didn't work hard. But if you know for sure, you worked your hardest, you put in all your effort, and now you're not succeeding, don't worry. You will succeed at some point. That's the message. And we're talking mainly about spirituality. But also it's a model that we have to have for all aspects of our life. If you put in your effort, the rest will come. Because that's how Judaism was given to Moses. He goes up the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. He's trying to understand this thing. He can't understand it. At the end, God says here. Here it is as a gift. Here's your bride. And he gives him the tablets. That's what it says in Psalms. I'll call up to God. I'll do all my effort. And then Hashem will finish it for me. This is a Jewish belief. When you see a young guy who goes to study Torah, you say to yourself, how is he ever going to know this Torah? It's just so much information. You learn one Talmud for two weeks and you won't understand it. You learn one page for two weeks, you don't understand it. But we believe, and this is how we succeed to understand so much. This is our wisdom, is that I'm, I'm just going to put my effort. I don't need to think of the result. I need to think of me putting in the effort. I put in the effort, put in the effort, put in the effort, and eventually the results will come. That's what I need to know. Keep digging, dig, dig, dig. The result will come. That's, that's the Jewish belief. That's why it says on Shabbat, we say when we pray, in the, in the afternoon prayer of Shabbat, we say these words. Listen carefully. Moshe was happy with his gift. He was a loyal servant to you. He received the crown on his head. You gave it to him when he stood before you on Mount Sinai. When you go up the mountain and you put in your effort, Suddenly you'll get the crown. I believe this so strongly because my whole life growing up, I was told, nah, you'll never do it. Teachers told me, you'll never be able to do it. Mellow. I was known as like the mellow. You'll never do it. And it wasn't until I went to yeshiva and I, I, I learned this idea that I sat and studied Torah and I said, I don't care what they think of, I will never do it. I'm going to put in my effort. And eventually the results will come. And look, I managed to become a rabbi and a teacher and, and in, inspire so many. So I, I don't believe that I have everything. I need to continuously work. But I definitely believe that when you work in the right way, you put in your effort, then you can always know that eventually the rest will come as a gift. This is a belief that you have to have. It's like shooting a rocket. This is what Rapinkus, a big, big rabbi says. How do you shoot a rocket to the moon? How much energy is used to shoot the rocket into the moon, into space? A tremendous amount of energy, right? Where's most of the energy used? You're shooting the rocket to space. How much fuel, when, when is most of the fuel used? 
Anyone know? Shooting a rocket to space. In the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning is when most of the fuel, after once you're in space, gravity is not, it doesn't matter. It has its own power. It just needs a, a small amount of energy to move. But to get it out of space, out of gravity, whoa, that needs a tremendous amount of energy. That's where the real beginning, that's where the energy is, is needed. So that's how we believe life is as well. You grind, you grind, you grind, you shoot the energy in that rocket. Take yourself out of gravity and eventually you're in space and God just takes you off. You just need a small amount of energy to keep you going. But the beginning, heart, the beginning part, that's when you need that tremendous amount of energy. And that's what happened with Moses. A child, a young person must never say, I'm never going to understand this. No, you will if you grind. You will. As long as you have a moach bekotkot, a brain in your mind, eventually you will. And this is why we have to respect our parents-in-law and have hakaratatov for our parents because they are the brides. They are the ones that shot that rocket and then gave it to me so that I can have it, right? That beautiful wife that I hope to have. I'll finish off a few minutes because I was talking about marriage, but I want to tie this into marriage as well and relationships. This is actually the point of relationships in itself, putting in the effort. Okay, many people, you ask them, why do you go into a marriage? Why are you getting into this relationship? Why do you get into marriage? So you say, because she'll support me, she'll give to me, she'll feed me, she'll look after me, right? All me, me, me. She's going to support me. She'll be true. There are those aspects of the marriage. There are those aspects of a relationship. But that's not the reason for marriage. You will get that. That's true. That's not the reason for marriage. If that was your only reason for marriage, you will be disappointed because it takes tremendous work. It's not about just getting married. It's about staying married. Everyone at some point, almost everyone at some point gets married. Not everyone stays married, right? Over 50% of people get divorced. So what is the point of marriage? Not just that we should, she will support me. That, that's a benefit that I'll get, but that shouldn't be my initial thought. My initial thought is that I'm getting married to become a better person. Perfection. Okay? When we get married, we come one. What does it mean to become one? I work on myself to a point that I can come one. Right? That's, I come one like God. How do you come one with another person that's so different to you? Right? You, the Zohar says it's two neshamot. These are literally, according to Kabbalah, it's two souls that come together. Before they were one, before you were born. And then they were split, each born in different times, in different zones, whatever it is. And then they come together miraculously. That's how we understand Kabbalistically. It's not just two bodies that come together. When you give that ring and you say, behold, you were betrothed to me, it's two souls that come together. You come one, right? But what's the oneness that happens? The oneness is through perfection. How do you perfect a, a, a gold? How do you perfect diamonds? You rub it against other diamonds. Right? It takes effort and heat to clean something. Right? It takes effort and heat to clean gold and silver. 
But that's the effort that's needed in marriage as well. That's why you have Shana Rishonah. The beginning of marriage is the rocket. It's the tremendous energy that you need to work on so that you can come that oneness. So if anyone asks me, what's the point of marriage? It's like every other mitzvah, which is to perfect myself so that I can come a better person. That is the point of marriage. And that's why, and I'll finish off with this, there's a different blessing that we say when someone's born than when someone gets married. When someone's born, we say, As much as this child got into his brit, into the covenant of the Jewish people when he's born, so too, we pray that he will eventually get Torah in him, mitzvah, which is bar mitzvah, Chupa is marriage. Then we say ma'asim tovim. Only after all of those things, we say then good deeds. That's the blessing. Strange blessing. As much as he got into this moment, which is the brief, the beginning of his life, so too we pray that he should get an understanding of Torah. He should get bar mitzvahed, start doing mitzvah, then get married, and then do good things. What? Good things are not before you get married? Why is good deeds only at the end? Because I'll tell you why. Because before married, before someone's married, you're not guaranteed that this person's going to succeed in being good. It's when somebody lives with another person and you have to give in for them. Three words. Compromise, compromise, and compromise. That's, that's the language of a marriage. That's what Rav Shach, a great rabbi, once said. If you want to know the tips for marriage, it's three words. Compromise, compromise, and compromise. If you want a marriage to work, that's what you're doing. You're compromising tremendously. So before that, I'm not guaranteed that I'm going to be good. But after, that's when I can be guaranteed that I'm going to be good if I work on myself. Right? So that's what we bless. When we bless, when, do you know what the blessing is when someone gets married? Adam. Thank you, Hashem. For creating a human being. Because now I can become a human being. Through this relationship. Through another person. And through me having to constantly not be with my, me, myself, and myself. But to be with somebody else and constantly have to learn to give in. Constantly learn to fold. Then I can prove that I'm becoming a great person. So that's the point of marriage. right? It's to work on myself. Like all other mitzvot. To work on myself. And again, at the beginning, it's like shooting that rocket out of space. It's Shanari Shona is considered the hardest year, not the easiest year. Physically, it might be a fun year. But actually, both physically and spiritually, it grows. And the greater you become together as a person, the greater your relationship comes, the greater the physical comes as well. And I could definitely attest to that as well. So my blessing to you all is that. You believe in yourself. You realize the power of the human being. You realize that, like we said, like the tablets, that we are, the spiritual controls the physical, not the other way around. And finally, if we put in our effort, if we put in our effort, the gift will come at the end. So uh, that's my message to you all for this week in Parshat Kitisa. We are not just a number. You want to lift up your head? Lift up your heads.
but recognize the power of what you are and what you're capable of doing. You're not just a, a, a number. You're something much greater than that. And that's the key to us believing in ourselves and to our happiness. All right. So that's me talking for an hour. <laughs> <laughs>